Welcome to Seeking the Truth, where we explore how successful companies and business leaders use data to make confident decisions. Hosted by Kirill Klokov, CEO and founder of Truve, a one-stop solution for income and employment verification. Brad, uh, thanks for joining us on Seeking the Truth. Uh, it's really nice to have you. Uh, just to kick it off, if you could tell us about your journey and what you've been up to recently, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kirill, th- first of all, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, appreciate, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so... Um, you know, my uh, my last uh, full time gig was was global CIO at PayPal. Um, I was there from 2011 to 2019, and um, since I quote unquote retired in 2019, I, I really don't use that word, but sometimes it's easiest uh, for people to understand. But I'm sort of semi retired, so I do um, I do board work on public and private boards. I do advisory work. I do um, I do some investing in, in startups and. Uh, I coach CIOs, so it's kind of a portfolio of uh, of different things. To I try to have that be about a third of my time, and then I spend a third of my time on nonprofit work and a third of my time kind of reserved for for whatever uh, I want to do for fun. You've had a, lo- a long career. Um, I guess you've seen a lot at uh, all this big organization that you worked at. Uh, if you were to say what's your career height, what would it be? Yeah, you know, so I would say that, I mean, definitely being CIO at PayPal was, it was the best job I ever had, uh, best team. It, uh, you know, when we split from eBay in 2015, I would say the work that we did to, to split the company, we spent 10 years stitching those companies together and we had nine months to separate them, which wasn't nearly enough time, but we did get it done two weeks early. Uh, I, I think that it, I would never want to do that again, but we learned an awful lot in that process. And it was an opportunity for a lot of people to really step up and accomplish something that seemed impossible. So I, I would say that definitely was was a high point. And what's, what's the biggest lesson for aspiring CIOs? Uh, what would you share in terms of wisdom? Yeah, you know, so I think I, think I would say that... Uh, Leadership matters. So what I mean by that is that, you know, we, we face a lot of technical issues. Um, you know, a lot of times I think we put a lot of uh, emphasis on technology skills and sort of technical chops. And those things are very, very important. But uh, for me, leadership matters. So the people side of things and the leadership skills, you know, I've seen far more often people who had very strong technical skills but they fail because they didn't have the leadership skills. It's far more rare, I think, someone who is a strong leader to fail because they didn't have the technical skills because a strong leader will surround themselves with the kinds of people that compensate for where they are not strong. And and so that would be the top piece of advice I'd give. I love it. Uh, How do you become a better leader? So I think, uh, so lots of ways, there's, there's no one, one single way, but one, I think have observing people who are in leadership roles. And it's a good lesson for all leaders to recognize people are always watching, even when you think they're not. So watching how other people lead, um, having great mentors. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of books out there on leadership. Um, I think just availing yourself of every opportunity to improve and look at uh, look at what works, and importantly, being vulnerable and listening 
to, to your team and to others and sometime and being willing to, uh, to take constructive feedback and seek it out, not just be willing to, to take it, but actually seek it out because it's the only way that we get better. What's your favorite book? Oh gosh. Um, as you can see, I'm, uh, I'm mostly asking for myself because I want to be a better leader. And uh... Yeah, there's so many, you know, I think for in sort of the leadership and in business category, I think good to great. Uh, you know, Jim, pretty much anything Jim Collins has written is, I think, really good, a good place to start. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that. <laughs> okay, incredible. Today, we're going to talk about uh, some security aspects. Just to kick it off, um, how should you be even thinking about enterprise security if you're building a company or if you're working at a startup? Yeah, so I think, um, especially for a startup, it's uh, the challenge is you have so many things that you're trying to do with very limited resources. You, you're, trying to, you're trying to generate a product, you're trying to generate revenue, all these things. So it's, it's very easy to take security as one of those things that, yeah, we know we need to do, but kind of put that on the back burner. And I think, um, I think that's a mistake. I think it is possible to, to do a startup with limited resources and do it in a way with an eye towards security. You, know, you, you probably can't afford a, a CISO. You can't necessarily afford all of the things that a big enterprise has, but you can start with the fundamental basics. And I like to, to think about first principles when it comes to security. And so, you know, very basic things like as we build a company, are, do we know, and this applies to, to big enterprises too, like do we know all the, I'll say devices or objects in our environment and what their configuration is. And, and those could be physical things or virtual objects. It's, a, it's amazing to me how many companies, even big companies with lots of security budget and don't know what all their devices are in their environment. And they don't know what their configuration is. So if you don't know that, how can you possibly even start to secure your, your environment? Uh, so that's, I think, a big first principle. Uh, I think there is a great deal out there uh, around zero trust and how to create a zero trust kind of model for security. Um, and Google you know, wrote that white paper over a decade ago on that, so I'd, I'd go read that. And, and just um, along with that basic data hygiene, it's not sexy, but, but basic security hygiene, are you using two-factor authentication? Um, do you have the basics in place? That's still where 80 or 90% of people get owned. And then you can elevate your game beyond that. But I, I think those kind of things are possible even for a startup. I get pinged often by SOC 2 type 2 companies that try to help get the certification. We got ours last year. Is that something that a lot of startups, like especially in the enterprise space, should be thinking about early on? How do you um, how do you prioritize something that's that was a pretty big lift for us? It would probably it probably took us six months to get it. Yeah. And it yeah. was a lot of work. Yeah. I think um, you know, it is a big lift. It's a big investment of your know, time and focus, precious commodities in a startup. So I think uh, my thought would be understanding what all is going to be involved. And it's kind of hard to know that till you get into it, but you can talk to other people and say, what did it, what did you have to go through? What did it cost? Not just in money, but in time and focus and commitment, and then try to figure out when, when you're really going to need it. And it depends on the industry you're in, but starting early down that path, probably is going to pay off, um, but you need to know what, what you're up against. It's not 
like a six, I think for most any company, it's not like a, a one month or a two month effort. And it's going to take a lot, probably more. I mean, and I think you experienced more than you think you think it was going to take. Uh, I think our uh, vendor was pretty good. So we got it right on time when we planned, but it was a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so figuring that out and working that into your company's growth plan, like wh where do you fit that into the roadmap? And it's going to, it's going to squeeze some other things out. So when do you put, put that in? On a, on a separate topic. So there are a couple of vectors of attack. When you are talking about devices, there's technical, there's uh, obviously less technical vectors of attack. How do you, how do you train your team? Where do you even start with that? Yeah, there, I mean, there are ton, tons and, and, and one of the most common is, is email. And, um, you know, I j just as an aside, I always, you, you do have to train your team what to look for, but I always found it a little bit odd that we expect, like, I, I would argue that, that, um, we, we, you and I could probably craft a phishing email that, that someone like us would click on. Like, it's just, you know, it's kind of, I think it's a little, you have to do it, but I think there's a huge market opportunity for someone to crack the code on, like, wh why do we have to do that? Why do we have to look for those things? Like, it seems like there should be a technical solution. So anyway, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but maybe an opportunity for somebody out there in the next startup. Um, I, you know, I think uh, the, the other thing is ju just training people to be security aware. Another huge vector, and it's in the new, you know, it, it's it's constantly coming up, um, is, is social engineering of employees, uh, particularly around customer service. That's, um, that's something that is a big gotcha out there and it's, it's hard to train for. Um, I think those areas and then just having the right monitoring in place so that you can see when something happens um, and, and actually alert it and take action on it, which means you have to have an alerting environment where you don't, it's, it's not, you have high signal to noise ratio so that you, you can actually spot those things. So those would be some, some of the things that I did talk about. So we just hired first, our first CISA and it took us a while to find the right person. How do you start? Where do you, what is important for when you hire a CISO? When you talk to somebody, how do you even assess out that they can be a good leader? They can build technolo technologically strong and, but also yeah. they can think about like, managing the broader team in the, in the right way so that it's it, the company stays yeah. safe and secure. So I think, you know, what, beyond the, the, there's sort of the, the table stakes around, is it, a, are they a cultural fit? How, you know, how do they, do they align with the company's mission? Like that kind of stuff, table stakes. But in terms of specifically for the CISO role, I think um, understanding their approach to, um, to security. You know, are they able to articulate some of those first principles that they um, that they would apply? Can they communicate at a board level and all the way down to you know an, an engineer developer level? Um, th those are important important skills, um, and I think you know fundamentally for me anyway, it would be how do they think about security? How do they think about managing risk? You know, do they recognize that you know, there's no such thing as, as 100% foolproof. Like, how, how do they think about those trade-offs between friction for employees and for customers? 
and security. Are they able to think about that risk trade? Because there's there is always that trade-off. You're always introducing some level of friction. Hopefully you can minimize it. But do, do they have the sort of mental models to think about things that way and, and explain them that way? Um, those would be some of the things that I would look at. For when you interview somebody for a size position, what would be the, your favorite question? Yeah. Um, my so this would, I would say my favorite question, regardless of whether it's a CISO role or something else, is, you know, if I, if I went and talked to a dozen people who worked with you, that you worked for or worked for you over your career, so 12 people, and I asked them two questions. The first of which is, you know, as you think about, as you think about Brad and what value add he brought to the table in whatever situation you were in. If I ask a dozen people, I get 12 different answers, but I come away with a theme. What are, what are two or three things that I would hear? And then the follow-up question is, hey, if you could give Brad one piece of advice on how he could be more effective, again, 12 different answers, but I come away with a couple of themes from that, what would I hear? I learn a lot from that question because it, it tells you about uh, whether people are self-reflective, are they you know, learners? That, that's my favorite interview question, and I'd use that for a CISO as well. Fantastic. I want to uh, switch gears a little bit because we are a purely PI company. Uh, we deal with a lot of organizations that have to think about fraud. Yeah. Well, I don't think we need to go into details, but I wanted to start like at a high level. When you think about fraud as an organization, how do you even, where do you even start? Let's say you're a bank. Yeah. What's, uh, how do you approach the fraud problem? Well, I think, um, so I think you block it into the different kinds of fraud. So it depends on what what business you're in. If you're if you're a consumer bank, you you've got fraud in the payment space. You've got fraud in uh, in the ATM channel. You've got fraud in the customer service channel. So there, there's all sorts of different places where it appears, and you have to in one sense you have to come to take a look at those things as buckets of of risk and evaluate how you're going to. To control for those, but at the same time, you also need to be able to integrate the intel you get from those buckets of risk because they are related. You may have someone who is attempting fraud through a particular two particular channels, and are you even going to know that? Are you going to be able to put put two and two together? I think that's uh, that's one approach. And then the other is what data resources and analytics resources can I leverage to minimize that fraud and and are there novel things that I can do? So, um, you know, in the payment space um, online, you know, there's there's lots of signals that you can look at beyond username and password. And so the more sophisticated companies are you know, constantly looking for ways to stay ahead of fraud because it's it's a game of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, you know, the bad guys are constantly raising the bar. And so trying to find a way to have an edge on that because in some of those businesses, you're, you know, the, it, it's a it's a low margin business on individual transactions, but you have huge volumes. So, a few uh, basis points of fraud can be the difference between being profitable or not. And so, constantly trying to look at all the different unique signals, and can you come up with something novel there, such that you know maybe you don't even. Uh, I think in, in some cases it can be more valuable than even the signal of, of username and password if you do it right. So those those would be 
some of the some of the thoughts about it. But it, it's a constantly evolving game. So if it's constantly evolving game, and you like say you join an organization, where do you start? How do you like? How do you approach the problem in, in not like at, at a high level, but like say, how do you prioritize? What do you focus on? What type of fraud should you focus on? Maybe you can tell a little bit of stories from your previous uh, companies. I don't know how much. How yeah, much I don't know how much I can because uh, yeah, but I, in general, I can say that you know it. I think where you start is looking. I mean, there's there's one one place you can start is all right. What do we know about the fraud that's occurring today? So how would we characterize it in terms of where it's coming from? And I don't just mean geographically, but, you know, what channels, what types of fraud um, are happening today? Um, that's one place. And then looking at ways that we can institute controls against, against that. But every time you do those controls, usually you're also, it's, it's a little bit like what, what we talked about on the security side, you're in, you are, um, you are adding to friction, customer friction oftentimes. So, you know, we, you can dial up the sensitivity such that, you know, fraud starts to approach zero, but then you don't approve any transactions. So that's not very, that's not very valuable. So in a sense that you, you have a budget for fraud and you're, you're constantly trying to figure out how I can spend less on fraud, knowing that it probably never can be zero because to get it to zero, there would be so much friction. It's it's not um, the customers aren't going to uh, to put up with that. So so that's that's one place to to look at it. Um, and then also, can where can we be innovative? Where can we apply artificial intelligence? Where can we apply unique sources of data of signal source that's going to allow us to be more accurate in our assessment in what is what is good versus bad. Because ultimately, in most of these scenarios, you're trying to sift good, good from bad, and um, the more you, more tools you can bring to that, uh, to that game, the typically the better off you're going to be. Think about this trade-off between like consumer experience and and the um, and the friction and actually catching the fraud. I know that we, we for example, we parse pay stops, right? We we know how the pay, good pay stop should look. And we can catch somebody's misspelling Florida or uh, having paste up on February 30th and, and things like that. We, we do apply like machine learning now on uh, the paste ups that we get in and we ingest. But also uh, what we do now is we actually get the data from the, the, the source of truth, which is a, a payroll system. Yeah. When you think about like identity fraud, I think things, things of that nature, how do you, um, how do you, uh, I mean, it's it's somewhere at the top of the funnel. There are so many people who sign up. What are the signals that you would be looking for when you're just starting out? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on on identity fraud, but I'd say you know one, one thing would be the more data that we can ingest, the better our algorithms are going to be. Like that's the fundamental rule of the game. So how can we um, how can we access you know, exponentially more data so that we can train our algorithms to differentiate good from bad. That, that to me is um, like at, at the highest level, one of the, one of the big things. And can we, are we going to do it? I forget the correct term here, but are we going to, uh, if, if we are able to, 
to, to allow our algorithms to have access to validated data, sort of like that, that saying that, you know, if you're going to teach someone to spot counterfeit currency at a bank, you don't show them all the different kinds of counterfeits. You show them the real thing and you let them feel it and touch it. And <laughs> that's how you learn to spot. So I think there a little bit of that translates into, into the AI space. So if we can, um, if we can access novel sources of valid data that we can feed our algorithms to learn, that's another perhaps way to get a little bit ahead of it. But those would be some, some of the things that I would, I would consider. So as a CIO, what, what was your favorite part of like, where did you spend the most time thinking at like the most recent organizations? Like what part of the problems do you like solve yourself? Where do you think you're the world-class expert where, and as a leader, you, I, I, I think you mentioned, it, it's like, it's, it's most important to understand where you're good at and where you're not good at and like hire yeah. the right, the, the right type. There's of very few things that I would solve myself because that would get us in trouble. But I, Cause I, I think one of the principles <laughs> is, you know, the more, the more senior the leadership role that you're in, the more it's about your team and not you. And so, you know, th things like making sure you build great teams so that we, we hire great talent and we develop that talent such that we can export it, ultimately export it within the organization, not outside the organization. So that's the trick. So uh, I would spend a lot of time on development of the team. I would say the places that I would go deep would be, you know, I have a tendency to, to be able to go deep. And so you have to guard how you use that. But to me, it's about um, asking the right questions. So very rarely giving direction, more asking questions that lead people to the right answer, which I may or may not have an inkling of, but if I ask the right questions, we'll get there. So th those would be would be some of the things that I, that I would say. My strategic imperatives for uh, priorities for years, they didn't change. One was security, first was security, because it, it, and especially in a financial services company, if we if we have a major incident, if we have a breach, it's you know it can be an existential event. So security number one, uh, stability number two. You know if the things, the capabilities we provide, if they're not stable, if they're not reliable, if they're not there for our customers and our employees, then you know we sort of lose the right to play. And then the third uh, is is a bucket I call strategic. So if we're if we're secure, we're stable. The third is strategic, and that's where kind of all the cool sexy stuff is that we get to work on that is innovative, but we don't really get to do that if we're not secure and we're not stable. So that was my three S's that anywhere I traveled in the world to talk to the team, we talked about those three and the things that we were doing in each of each of those buckets. Um, and that regardless of whether you were, you know, uh, you, you were working on something that was had direct customer exposure and impact, or you're working on some obscure backend system that hardly anybody knew about, like you can be innovative to like everybody has an opportunity to be innovative and what, what I would call impactful innovation. So not just doing a hackathon for hackathon's sake, but actually impactful innovation that has some output that's going to benefit the customer or the company in some way. So talking about innovation in the future, how do you think, uh, security fraud would evolve in the next, uh, say, five to 10 years? Yeah, I, um, 
gosh, if I really knew the answer to that question, I'd be able to, <laughs> I'd be able to place some, some well, some good bets. But, you know, I think if we, if, if there's any trend there, it certainly is that the level of sophistication of the bad guys is going to constantly go up. The, our dependence on whether you're talking about IOT or you're talking about the financial um, networks out there, our dependence goes up. And so our ability to, to be secure, the, the stakes continue to, to rise. And we have to, we have to really be a lot better than I, I think we have historically. You know, it's, um, er, it's almost every day now that something's in the news and, and quite often, not always, but I'd say 80% of the time, it's, it's basic stuff. You know, we left a S3 bucket open and unencrypted and nobody knew about it. Like, well, okay, so that's not really rocket science, but yet we do it over and over again. So, you know, I, I do think that blockchain technology is going to play a role in some of this stuff. I think, you know, if I was quite a bit younger and looking to do a startup, I'd, I'd be looking at identity and authentication in, in some new way, uh, maybe with the blockchain and, and not just identity and authorization, but also compliance. I think there's, there's opportunities there, but yeah, I don't know. I, that's about as far as my crystal ball lets me look. Yeah, but you mentioned a few times the bad guys. I was always wondering how profitable is it to be a hacker? Is it really that profitable that there's uh, so many groups that are out there doing it? Or is it just uh, habitual? Like you became a coder and you wanted to just do something yeah, and, you know, you really, and you really just never had an opportunity to become a developer at the real organization and build something for other people that folks I, might know. You know, from what I From what I see, I think it's all over the all over the board. I think it ranges from really, really talented 16-year-old, 16-year-olds in their basement of their parents' house who are super talented, super, and want to want to try to see what they can accomplish. So you have that, you know, all the way to very sophisticated state actors that have very specific objectives and everything in between, including, you know, organized crime and nation state um, actors that are, they're just trying to make money. And there's a lot of money that's been made uh, and will continue to be made. So, yeah, I think it can be profitable. There's obviously risks that go along with that, but uh, it, it's, it's not going away. I don't, I don't think. <laughs> not from what I've seen. If I were to make a bet, it's probably accelerate, but they more... I think it's going to accelerate, yes. <laughs> I think it's going online and uh, more services available online. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you invested in, at, in Truth. Uh, you were one of the first checks in the company. What made you excited to be an investor? Yeah, and so I, I look for a couple of things. One is the team, it, it, because I think ultimately you're betting on the team more than anything else. It's not the only thing, but I happen to think it's the most important thing. So one is a team. I like the team. And, and that includes how they think about things, their industry experience, like a whole, whole bunch of stuff. But ultimately, do, do, I, do I like these people? Do I think? that it's the right group and do I enjoy talking to him and hanging out with him? So that, that's kind of all, all in one, one, one bucket. I think the other thing is, um, is the idea, is the business idea have the potential to be disruptive? Those are the ones that I get most excited about. And, and I find there's signposts for disruption, you know, and, and those would include things like, you know, it hasn't changed in decades. 
it's expensive, it's slow, customers don't don't like you. <laughs> like all those things are signposts of an industry that may be ripe for disruption. And in in you guys' case, I I thought those many of those signposts were there. And so I like the team. I like I like the opportunity to disrupt. So those were I'd say those are the two major things that that say, hey, I'm I let me in on this. When you were talking about the company that hasn't changed and the clients don't like it, I had a very one very specific one, but I'm not going to mention it. But thank you for uh, joining us on Seeking the Truth. It's been great hanging out with you. I learned a lot, and uh, hope our subscribers will learn too. Thanks for coming. It's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Seeking the Truth. You can keep up with the latest on our podcast at truve.com slash podcast or wherever you get your pods. We'll see you next time.